Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Sunday, December the 11th, a little afternoon here in Boston. Fresh off our World Cup episode, we had had a couple shockers in the quarterfinals, um, but that's not the only headline that I think we'll be covering. What what are we talking about this week? Yeah, World Cup continues to be fun to watch, and like I said last week, we might still be heading for the inevitable – South America versus Euro final. We might get the classic Argentina versus France, but Croatia and Morocco still have something to say about that. And so it's been fun rooting for the underdogs. Morocco is the first African nation to make the semifinals, which is really exciting for African nations, for Arab nations. And like we had kind of talked about last week, if another country in that region of the world, North Africa, the Middle East gets the world cup in the future through legitimate means. This is a really good sign given how much support that the Moroccan team has gotten and really how much support a lot, like the, a lot of the North African and Middle Eastern teams got in in Qatar. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, obviously Qatar being the host country, they get sort of an automatic bid, but we're really not there quality wise, but now they have this representative in Morocco, like, as you said, representing African nations, but also Arab nations. <clears throat> and I think I think that that's pretty cool. I also think it's a very interesting dynamic to have them go up against France because France for, you know, years have been sort of <laughs> raiding sort of the, the coffers of the North African kind of talent pool. Um, you know, Zinedine Zidane, obviously Benzema is, I think, Algerian or Tunisian. And there are a lot of... Uh, there is a lot of that in the French team, which I I'm 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 all for. I think uh, players should be able to play for kind of whatever nationality most resonates with them, and potentially potentially which team they think is going to have the best chance of winning. Um, but it's uh, I think it'll be a I think it'll be a cool dynamic. I'm interested to see sort of what it's like in France for that game because there's I'm sure a pretty big Moroccan contingent in France as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it just continues the theme of how sports and politics continue to like intertwine and intersect. And maybe maybe it's inevitable, but this is just another example of that. So this week, as you said, the World Cup is not the only thing making headlines. And so we decided to do another episode where we're going to talk about six topics, give ourselves maximum 10 minutes on each to try to limit ourselves the best we can and not not thrown on uh, for too long as we are wont to do. Uh, but we did one of these back in August, and we really we thought it was a fun episode, and people can you know tune into the topics they're particularly interested in. And so the six topics that we're going to talk about this week are Raphael Warnock winning his runoff in Georgia against Herschel Walker. We're going to talk about Kirsten Cinema, who the Democratic senator from Arizona, who. It's no longer the Democratic Center from Arizona. She switched her party affiliation to be an independent. 
We're going to talk about the reshuffled primary calendar for uh, the Democratic primaries in 2024 and beyond. We'll talk about Congress passing the Respect for Marriage Act, which legalized federally same-sex interracial marriages. One of the topics that we talked about on, on this episode back in August was the cap of this episode. She's back uh, as of this week. And finally, and perhaps unfortunately, uh, we'll be talking about President Trump's latest antics. But before we get into all that, we do want to remind everyone that this podcast has been brought to you guys, you guys at the the guys, the hardworking guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, they've been be- building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. I'm sure this doesn't happen at the Cannon Hill Wood studios, but Ricky, how can you tell if someone who has been cutting wood hasn't cleaned up after themselves properly? I want to say sawdust, but it doesn't. Uh... <laughs> there you go. If you saw dust, you would know that they hadn't cleaned up properly. Well done, Ricky. Wow. Okay, it's nice. It's nice. It's nice for you to get one every once in a while, and then it makes me feel better about the jokes too. All right, uh, let's let's get into the topics. Well, Ricky, as Steve Kornacki warned us back at the end of September, election night wasn't just election night this cycle. It wasn't even election week. It was a full election month. And that finally concluded this past week with the Senate runoff in Georgia as incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock defeated the Republican challenger Herschel Walker by a rather tight 51-49, close to 52-48 margin. But this assures Senator Warnock of a full six-year term. He has four years. He ran his Democratic primary originally. Then he won the 2018 uh, general election. And then there was a runoff in 2018. And then same thing in 2022. But now Raphael Warnock is is officially in for six years. There's a lot of storylines coming out of this. The biggest, besides the victory for Warnock himself, is that it gave, at the time, Democrats a more solid majority of a 51-49 majority in the Senate. This is big because Vice President Harris now no longer has to decide to cast the deciding vote in a 50-50 Senate. So for I know for her office, she was excited because she's been stuck, forced to like stay, stay in Washington a lot over the past two years in case any votes come up in which she does need to cast the deciding vote. You joked when we talked about this race a little while ago that Joe Manchin was probably rooting for Herschel Walker because it would allow him to maintain his almost like vice-like grip on the, with the Democrats needing him to get anything done, but they, they can afford a defection now, which, which maybe they've already had, but uh, so it gave Democrats some breathing room. It also allows Democrats to more easily bring votes to the floor in the Senate for like um, confirming judges or other Biden nominees for positions. And it's also huge for, for Senator Warnock to, to come out on, on top here. So, Ricky, what, what did you make? There's a lot of different storylines coming out of it. What were some that you were focused on for Warnock's victory? Yeah, I mean, I guess first, probably Georgians are probably just happy to have this over with. I'm sure they've just been inundated for the past month with um, all, all different types of 
political advertising. Um, I, uh, yeah, this isn't, this is an interesting one because for me, like in many ways, Warnock was the only serious candidate on the ballot. Um, so I think there are, I mean, I'm Republicans were kind of already doing this before Herschel Walker lost, but like, Hey, what were we doing with this? Can't like, this is Georgia. This is kind of our, you know, prime stomping grounds we shouldn't be losing senate seats in in georgia um and you know thinking about the right the quality of candidate type of question um but like you said yeah for for warnock in general this is this is <clears throat> this is big for democrats in general to have secured uh, a blue seat in a red in a pretty red state for six years is a, is not uh is certainly a big deal. So um yeah, I mean it it's it's kind of weird sort of thinking about how important it is given that it kind of maintains some of the status quo in Georgia, but um I think it's yeah, it's it's pretty momentous. I'm not sure like long term really what it says again because I think Herschel Walker was just not the right person for the Republicans to put forward. Yeah, I think that this is just another example of one of the main trends coming out of the 2022 election cycle, which is that, as McConnell said, candidate quality matters, and the Republicans nominated some poor candidates across the board for Senate, and, and they paid for it. Uh, and, and it's another loss, we'll talk about former President Trump later, but another loss for a hand-picked Donald Trump candidate. I'm just speaking to like the historical nature of these 2022 elections. Uh, this is the first election cycle in which no incumbent lost, no Senate incumbent lost re-election, which is is pretty incredible on, on both sides. So it's the first, it's the first time ever since 1914, which is when people like began popularly electing senators. Um, this will be the first time since 1934, so FDR's tenure as president, where that the sitting president didn't lose any senators from their own party. So a huge win for President Biden. And again, bucks everything that we had thought was going to happen six months ago. And just for Democrats in general, it's really remarkable. Democrats ended up picking up a seat in the Senate in addition to two governor's offices here, Massachusetts and Maryland, and four state legislative chambers. So uh, as we start to step back a little bit more, this is just another example of a pretty damn good cycle for Democrats. Yeah. I, and I mean, I'll be interested to see sort of maybe, you know, six months or a year down the road when a little bit more analysis around the results and, and kind of the voting motivations comes out. I mean, we sort of talked about the, the hunch around what it is, but the kind of the idea around the Republican social policy agenda, not being, um, yeah, being enough to sort of detract from or detract from all of the momentum that you would expect from the from the outside party in the year when right inflate when we have these issues with inflation and um just general sort of discomfort around what's going on in the economy, um you would think would be a prime prime time for the outside party to pick up seats. And, and of course it, it wasn't. And I think part of that, especially in these Senate races is an implicit understanding of how important the Senate has been for Republicans to push forward a lot of 
their agenda kind of quietly, like through electing or through nominating specific judges <clears throat> for certain uh, for certain courts. Obviously, the Supreme Court comes to mind to, for most people, but I mean, it's sort of been happening up and down um, over the last decade. So I think that that I think that's interesting. I, I'm also curious. I don't know if you've seen any numbers. I I haven't around like just voter participation in these midterms. If it was up, down, or sideways from from midterms prior, have have you seen anything on that? It was largely un, unchanged. Uh, I guess Georgia in particular, where there was lots of focus. You and I have talked about it previously on the podcast about some of the allegedly more restrictive voting laws that Georgia put in place that a number of Democrats were worried was going to tamp down. Uh, minority votes that doesn't seem to be the case that doesn't necessarily mean that the voting laws aren't more restrictive but that through their ground game through like their political operations democrats were able to turn out black voters essentially in in the same numbers that they had been able to turn them out previously so some of the hand reading ringing over that some of those voting laws in georgia after 2020 perhaps was a, a little premature again doesn't mean that's that the voting laws are, are not are great in Georgia, but um, maybe wasn't quite as bad as a lot of people initially feared. Yeah. Well, it's all fair as long as you win, right? Yeah, ex- right. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a fair point of, and, I, and Warnock said it. So actually I want to get back to Warnock. Warnock said that in his speech. So like, even though we won, it doesn't mean that the laws here still aren't too restrictive that we should, we, that we don't need to keep working on expanding access to the ballot. And so Warnock's win, I think, maybe sometimes or gets lost a little bit in like these bigger trends about like Democrats performance in general or what this allows Biden to do or how it reflects on Trump or about poor candidate quality of Republicans in general. But Warnock himself, yeah, he, he the the benefit to running essentially five campaigns in two and a half years is that he's now one of the most recognizable U.S. senators because like so much of the national media has been trained on like these Georgia runoffs in the 2020 and 2022 election cycle. Lots of people know who he is and his speech was good. I like I, I don't know if you saw it to me, it went on a little bit long, but he, he starts by saying, quote, I am Georgia. I am an example and iteration of its history, of its pain and its promise, of its brutality and its possibility. And he also had this really great line. I don't have it in front of me, but like I've got chills listening to it where he's like, like 50 years ago, my mother picked someone else's cotton and picked someone else's tobacco, but today she picked her youngest son to be a U.S. senator. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and so it's it's really interesting. And as Georgia perhaps turns to a little bit more of a purple state, and as we'll talk about moves up in the primary elections, it is one of the few states these days which actually seems to be up for grabs in elections. Warnock's an interesting Guy to keep an eye on for the future. And it's, it's, I think it's too soon to say that someone who barely squeaked out a Senate victory is now all of a sudden this presidential candidate. And I do think that this is a classic, I guess I'm falling into like that classic media trap of immediately elevating someone to like a more national role, like a la Stacey Abrams or Beto O'Rourke. But like those people lost, like Warnock won. And so I do think looking down the road, maybe it's not in 2024, but 2028, 2032, like he's 53, like he's, He's got an interesting future ahead of him. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that clocks our first category. Um, On to the next. 
So just as Democrats thought that they could breathe a little bit easier with their increased majority, two days later, Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona switched her party affiliation, dropping the Democratic Party in favor of becoming an independent. In some ways, this is not shocking at all. And in her press release, she pretty much said that this doesn't change who I am as a senator, doesn't change my plan on how I'm going to vote or how I'm going to legislate. This is essentially just a a change in the letter next to her name. And that's how a lot of people treated it. She's not going to lose any of her committee assignments. She's expected to, again, vote the same way. And so Senator Schumer... Uh, Majority Leader Schumer said, like, she's always been independent, so this isn't really a surprise to us. With that said, it is rare for anybody at the national level to switch their party affiliations like this. Cinema, along with Manchin, was one of the thorns in the Democrat side over the past two years and holding up some of the Biden administration's agenda. But she's also been an incredibly effective legislator and contributed greatly to some of the Biden administration's signature bills in terms of getting bipartisan support on those bills from the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure framework to the Inflation Reduction Act to the the CHIPS bill. So, Ricky, is this just much ado about nothing and like kind of just status quo is going to remain a status quo or is this kind of a big deal? I think on... I think actually, unfortunately, it is much ado about nothing. Um, We've had other senators in the past who are like, quote unquote, independent, but basically caucus with one party and effectively vote for 85 to 90 percent of the things along their party's line. And yeah, I mean, I guess it it takes away from as you, you know, the the 51 to 49 is now a 50, 49 and one majority so like maybe it's 50 and a half or whatever but in in general i don't think it does a ton for the you know the agenda for the next two years let's say however i kind of wish it was more important i kind of i like a little bit of sort of the more european governing coalition model where party parties can actually have sort of factions within themselves. Um, So you can have a more liberal wing and you can have a more conservative wing of the same party. Um, I think in general, like that's how I would envision more effective legislation that like you start to get, you can get sort of the more socially liberal conservatives in on some of the you know, legislation when it comes to social policy or, yeah, whatever, or, you know, the more conservative, the more fiscally conservative Democrats have like an avenue to to work more across the aisle. I think the fact that we've really been, we're in a situation where our Senate basically does vote 100% along these party lines and there is really no communication across, save for a few things. I think we'll get to talk about one of them um, today, but like in general, I just don't think that that's a good way to legislate. I, I like we like we talk about diversity of perspective is like important, and we're not we don't really get that um, per se because of the current structure. 
I think. And so like, it would be interesting to me if there was like a more, there was actually like an independent block who you could think of as like, these are swing votes that are available for anything because they're going to be considering the legislation on its merits and not based on which party puts it forward. Yeah, I agree. I think my initial reaction was that I like this news, but you're right. It might not change anything. So to your point, she's actually the third independent senator now in in the U.S. Senate. So Bernie Sanders is an independent from Vermont and Angus King from Maine is also an independent. But Ricky, as you correctly point out, both of them caucus with the Democrats and are Democrats in all but name. It would be fascinating to me. I don't think this is going to happen. But if someone like a Mitt Romney was like, yeah, screw it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of the Republican Party. It doesn't represent me anymore. I'm going to be an independent too, right? And like, then you kind of wonder, like, does Manchin look around? Does Susan Collins look around? Lisa Murkowski? Does some of these people start looking around and being like, what if we just got 10 of us? And in in both parties were now in like the low 40s and they needed us for all of us. Again, do not think that was going to happen. But you and I who have been pushing for like third parties in, in the system for a long time, maybe this gives us a chance to like dream a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wonder what it does um, when it comes to her re-election. I don't know. Is she up in 24? Yes. Okay. So (laughs) if people wanted to be more cynical about this, and many people are, is that Democrats have been furious with with cinema since she was elected in in 2018 because she hasn't, like, she's been an obstacle to a lot of what they have tried to do. And they said that they felt like they had been a little bit misled with her campaign in 2018 versus what she's actually done in the Senate. And there's been a lot of reports that have come out that she's doing this, not for any particularly noble reason or to better represent the people of Arizona. She's doing it to protect herself because she was almost assuredly going to get primaried from the left. There are two Arizona representatives, Ruben Gallego in particular, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name, right? Gallego. Um, what had already like explored there's already a a primary cinema uh, political action committee out there and Glego was rumored to be going to challenge her on on the left now if democrats do that you might end up with like a three-way race with a, a more progressive left candidate cinema in the middle and a republican candidate which becomes really dangerous for Democrats trying to hold this seat because what's most likely is that the whoever they nominate on the left is going to split votes with cinema and the Republican could win with 40% of the vote or whatever. So it's a really, everyone always says, whether you like her or hate her, she's a super politically savvy operator. I think one thing that's interesting, Ricky, is in doing a little bit more research on her, she originally was a member of the Green Party back in the early 2000s. And when she first ran for the state legislature in Arizona, she refused to join the Democratic Party because she thought it was too conservative. She was so far to the left that she was like, all right, I'm not I'm not joining your party. But after she lost as a Green Party candidate, she joined the Democrats. And now she's all the way on the other side. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question of, of her reelection. Arizona's gonna be fascinating to watch in two years. I have a turntables. Um, all right. I think that clocks another topic. Another big change for 2024 that President Biden has put forward is a change in the order of the, the primary calendar, essentially a change in the order of when states are going to vote. 
So for close to 50 years now, it has been the Iowa caucuses first and then the New Hampshire primary second. New Hampshire has a state law, which says it's going to be the first. It, it, it always has to be the first in the nation primary. But over the past couple of years, the Democratic National Committee in general and the White House and President Biden specifically have been debating changing that calendar around for a number of reasons. The Iowa caucus system seems maybe a little anachronistic. Iowa infamously didn't do a very good job counting votes in the 2020 election, but probably most importantly, Iowa's demographics are increasingly out of step with the National Democratic Party. Iowa is over 90% white. It is increasingly a conservative Republican state as I believe all congressional seats now are held by also overwhelmingly white. And the DNC and Biden were kind of saying in, in order for any Democrat who wants to be a presidential contender and wants to eventually be the nominee, we can't just be having the first two states be overwhelmingly white. That's not what the Democratic base is these days. And so last week, President Biden put forth a a new plan for the primary order, which starts in South Carolina. Then it would go to Nevada and New Hampshire on the same day. And then it would move Georgia up to fourth in the list with Michigan fifth. So it cuts Iowa out of the running at the beginning completely. It moves South Carolina way up in the order and it brings Georgia and Michigan into the first five states for the first time. So this is one of those things where I don't think it's much ado about nothing. I actually think this is a sneaky, really big deal, whether or not people realize. I think the people who are running or looking to run presidential campaigns realize how big of a deal this is. So, Ricky, why do you why is it such a big deal? Yeah, it's I mean, on on the surface, it feels like it shouldn't be a big deal. Right. Like there's. But there is this whole like idea of like political momentum. And of course, like if you don't win the first state, I mean, Biden's, you know, presidential hopes in 2020 were largely, you know, very much on the margin following the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. And then all of a sudden he comes in and crushes South Carolina. So like there's there is and then, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So there is something to be said for. Yeah, the reality that that the Democratic voter base, the one that turns out kind of across the country, is a, is more or less non-existent in two of the states that are sort of being asked to give an early indication of which direction the Democratic Party should lean. And then there's, of course, the idea that like, yeah, if you don't win some of the early states as a candidate, you should drop out before some of the other primaries, which, <clears throat> of course because it's so expensive to run sort of makes sense. Um, and, and like the idea of like, yeah, we want to be coalescing around a single candidate. So when we're going into the general election, it's, there's not that kind of idea of, you know, uh, a fractured party and yeah, whatever the, you know, the, the, the 2016 type of situation for, for Democrats and probably similarly for, for any party. Um, I, well, A, I'm, I am a big fan of tradition. So it is, I think, a little bit sad for those states that, that basically the way things have been run for, you know, the better part of a probably 
I, I don't know when it sort of started with the Iowa caucuses, but I imagine this has been like this for a long time is changing. I think it's also a little bit unnerving that, you know, South Carolina, really the state that Biden kind of made, you know, his deals, his deals with uh, Clyburn and and whatever to get to kind of solidify a lot of that support is now going to be the front running state. Like it's of course, I don't, I don't think you like to, I mean, while I think the intent makes sense, like a lot of the reasoning makes sense. Like it is a little bit weird to have a, a presidential candidate before he's running for his next election, again, kind of rewrite the rules clearly not, you know, in his favor in a way, like that's a, that's a strange thing to do and all and for folks to allow to be happening. Like, I think I would maybe prefer that, that it becomes sort of standard practice and that there's like actual reasoning behind why we choose South Carolina and not like, other than like, oh, we think it better reflects the Democratic Party or like which way the Democratic Party is going to lean or something. I don't know. So clearly I have a lot. There, there's my cynical, Ricky. There he is. I knew he, could, he couldn't couldn't keep him down quiet for long. I think that's a huge thing because from if you're looking at it from a altruistic spin, which is certainly what the White House and President Biden put on this, they're saying that we need to elevate voices of color earlier in the primary we shouldn't have to wait so long and get two overwhelmingly white states to do to speak first before we get a more diverse electorate, which again is the Democratic base. And so what they've done is moved South Carolina, which I believe is 25, 30% black, and then Georgia, another really diverse state, up in the order. As you correctly noted, South Carolina was the place that turned around President Biden's candidacy in, in 2020. There is little doubt that this would be a huge advantage for him in 2024. Some of the names that have been bandied about, like uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg or some other candidates, didn't do, Elizabeth Warren, didn't do like super well in the South Carolina primary, have traditionally maybe struggled connecting with Black voters, which is an objective issue for their candidacies in general, but it makes it a lot easier for President Biden to be successful. In addition to that, Another winner here, and this is people taking care of their own, this would be good for a Vice President Harris run, whether it's in 2024 or 2028. Uh, Some other people that I do think it helps is, like we talked about, Ralph Senator Warnock. Georgia is now up there, and could he do well in South Carolina? Probably. So that's something that might be good for him. Gretchen Whitmer, who we've talked about before, now Michigan is one of the the early states and the first really Midwestern state. I think she could make a credible case that in order to win the presidency, you have to win Midwestern Rust Belt states. So I think she would be benefited by this. People that are hurt by it, like I mentioned, um, Buttigieg, other people that perhaps don't have those same ties down either in in southern states or with with black voters so like you said while it's maybe this it comes out there are some good reasons that you could argue for a switch up in the democratic order it's hard to escape the like actual political realities of this change yeah i I mean there is this sort of like it's kind of like an esoteric almost like a political nuance and it may for most people go kind of unnoticed um but i wonder too how much it feeds into sort of the republican or like the trump style narrative that the democratic party 
you know, no longer cares about white people, especially like middle class, lower middle class, working white people in states like Iowa um, and New Hampshire. And they're basically saying that, like, you're no longer who we go to. And of course, you know, New Hampshire did go for Biden while while Iowa, obviously, as as you mentioned, did not um, by sort of changing this order. So, yeah, I mean, I th- I, it, it's potentially something that that will have a big impact, but will largely go unnoticed or um, I'm not entirely sure if it's going to be as as positive on the whole for Democrats as as they would as they would hope. And then I think, you know, where I started was that, like, it shouldn't like this idea of like political momentum and like forcing people to drop out of the primaries after, you know, the first day or like heading into Super Tuesday. I think the the idea of, you know, what other states are voting, determining how other states vote, I think is an I think is an interesting one. And it goes back to kind of like the old narrative around like what makes a viable candidate. And if you can't win in Iowa, can you really win? Blah, blah, blah. And I don't I feel like a lot of those things are out the window with just kind of how the last several election cycles have gone. But but I don't know, like politically, as you said, so some of the reasoning makes a lot of sense. But how do you feel um, about its like actual impact? let's say beyond Biden, just in terms of like who, what types of candidates are going to go forward. And I, I mean, I guess you kind of alluded to it too, in, in terms of who you think it benefits. Right. And to the DNC and the White House's credit, if there are fewer and fewer states that are true toss-ups at this point, but some of them that are Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, and spending time and money in those states at the beginning, I think is a, a pretty good strategy. But yeah, I definitely think it, it changes. I don't know that. I think it probably hurts some white, more liberal progressives. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily, it shouldn't necessarily be that way, but inevitably the, like those first states are, like they're winnowing states. They, they, when you have 10, 12 candidates, there's only so much money to go around. There's only so many volunteers and workers to go around serve to do that so while i don't necessarily agree with that i think that's just a political reality you can't have 10 candidates running campaigns across 50 states simultaneously it's just it's not possible so people want to get on board with winners and those first few states show who the winners might be we'll see we'll see if new hampshire lets this happen by the way new hampshire like governor sinu has pretty much been like nah it's in our state constitution we don't really care what happens particularly as republican he might just be like, no, we're just holding our primary first. So this might this might be another much ado about nothing. But that, that'll be something that'll be interesting to watch. It will be interesting if he like figures out a way to pull it into like 2023 or something. Yeah. Going first. Moving on from election talk, a somewhat historic bill passed the House today uh, after passing the Senate last week. And the bill is called the Respect for Marriage Act. And what it does is it enshrines federal protection for same-sex and interracial marriages into federal law. And this is a big deal because prior to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 
everyone just kind of assumed that abortion rights were protected uh, across the country. And then when the Supreme Court in Dobbs back in June overturned Roe, those rights were all of a sudden no longer protected. And one of the big arguments that conservatives made and that I've made on this podcast, well, was, well, if Congress wanted to protect those rights, they had 50 years to do so and they just didn't do it. And Ricky, you, you and many others pointed out, well, like no one thought that it was a possibility that those rights would all of a sudden be taken away. Well, in his concurrence in Dobbs, Justice Thomas wrote that given the court's holding in Dobbs, the court should go back and look at a number of its other decisions, including Obergefell, which protected the right to same-sex marriage in 2015, and Loving, which protected the right to interracial marriage back in 1970. This all of a sudden was on the table. And even though many conservatives, including Justice Alito, said that this actually wasn't possible, the reality was that Thomas had opened the door, and doors that Thomas have opened often tend to be walked through years later by by uh, other justices. So this was a possibility. And if Congress, to its credit, was pretty much like, we need to act to protect these rights. And so they put forward this bill. There was some haggling over it to protect religious liberties of people and not forcing people who have religious beliefs against same-sex marriage to perform certain duties. But it ended up passing the Senate uh, 6136 last week, and then it passed the House uh, 258 to 139. So bipartisan legislature um, legislation in, in both cases, and it's it, it's it's a big deal. And I think it. While I, I want to talk more about the legislation itself, where it's not necessarily all encompassing and all protecting in the way some people might want it to be, it does hopefully alleviate some concerns that interracial or same-sex couples have in the United States. Yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, I think it's definitely huge for, for a number of reasons, you know, those, those which you covered, I think the bipartisan support is also a big deal in a deal like this, even though of course we, you know, it's not, not, not sort of like a unanimous support, but with the bipartisan is it wasn't you know that close is I I think is important um, and just thinking about sort of more broadly like where we've come right it was two thousand and four I want to say DOMA Defensive Marriage Act right so ninety six ninety six oh yeah. wow it's Clinton, Clinton who signed it yeah ah okay so there yeah I mean to to just get from there to where we are here um, in terms of actually protecting to a degree and and sort of recognizing the legitimacy of um, same-sex marriage and and interracial marriage is is a big deal. And I think when we sort of look at kind of the social progression of this country, we've often talked about the fact that it doesn't have to be linear, but I think this will definitely be kind of one of the one of the points that people look back on and 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 think about kind of our overarching trajectory in terms of treating all people uh, with respect and dignity for who they are and, and their personal choices and 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 I think that that is um, or uh, yeah just for who they are. Well, I'll leave it at that. I, I think it's a big, big deal. 
I, I do think it's important to note how quickly things have changed here in the United States. And Ricky, this is a hat tip to you is last week when we talked about Iran, we talked about how backwards we think some like that morality police are. Same thing when we talked about Qatar and their treatment of LGBTQ people. But and you correctly pointed out, it wasn't that long ago that Americans, and, and they are not the same. I am not equating the two at all. But like same-sex marriage was illegal in many places, in all places, 25 years ago, in many places, 10 years ago. And so it, it is fascinating to see it. I mean, President Clinton, like like I said, was the president that signed this into action. Obviously, the Republican candidates, President Bush in particular, ran a, a main plank of their social policy was protecting defense of marriage, marriage between one man and one woman. That was a major theme of the 2000, 2004 campaigns, successful campaigns for President Bush. Even people forget this now, but like President Obama was against same-sex marriage when he ran in 2008. And it was actually in President Biden voted for the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. And this isn't to criticize those people. This is just like politically, it wasn't possible to be pro-same-sex marriage until very recently. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I think the the cool thing is that there is like a kind of a case study is probably not the right word, but it bears like really analyzing like what are the conditions that allowed this kind of about face here and in the United States. And like, if we believe in these rights, which we do, how do we sort of help people striving for the same things in other places do that? And I think that's, that to me is, is something that we really ought to think about because again, like no outside force came and did this for us. No one was from the outside looking at us like, you know, you're, you're horrible people. And, uh, you know, you have to make this change. And obviously had they been like that, I don't, you know, that would never have been a major factor for us, but it was like from within, we figured this out that obviously we have brothers and sisters who are, uh, yeah, who may be homosexual or, whatever lgbtq like any whoever they may be they are like our friends and our family and they deserve the same rights and protections that that we all do and we came to that conclusion on our own and how do we promote that in other places i think is really like as i look forward that's what i hope that we sort of start to figure out how to do because it, it is yeah it, that sort of societal shift is 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 huge as you said not 25 years ago it's a very different place and that's not that long yeah ago. just to, yeah just just to build off that um when the defense of marriage act came out in 1996 the gallup did a poll of how many what percentage of americans were in favor of same-sex marriage and it was 27 percent so it over like the doma defense of marriage act was overwhelmingly popular like i like i don't want that to get lost at the time but i think now it's easy to be like oh it was those conservative senators that were like imposing their beliefs no as a society we did not believe in same sex marriage 25 years ago now they ran that poll a couple of months ago 71% in favor of of same sex marriage and obviously this is over a bigger timeline but uh, interracial marriage, 4% popularity in 1958 when Gallup first polled it. Now it's 94%. So I, I do think like these these massive societal shifts, they are worth looking into. And I think it's 
honestly, it's something to be proud of. And I know that one of the main senators who put this bill together, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, she was the first openly gay U.S. senator. Like, what a moment for her. And, and with Cinema again, who's also bisexual and Barney Frank, who was a former congressman from Massachusetts, was there. And so it's it is just a it is a really big deal in a lot of ways. I do want to say that to be clear, this only protects those marriages from a federal perspective. That if the Supreme Court does go back and revisit any of those decisions, just like with abortion, it will throw a lot of that stuff back to the states. And 35 states currently have laws on their books restricting same-sex marriages. I, I doubt, I don't, I don't have a number on restricting interracial marriages. I doubt nearly as many, but it wouldn't shock me to see that there's still a few laws in a few states on the books banning those type of marriages. So while this is great news, because for same-sex couples, interracial couples, their rights and their marriages will be respected at a federal level, it doesn't guarantee that states will be forced to respect those levels if the Supreme Court does go back and revisit those decisions. So the only way to do that would be through a constitutional amendment. At a federal level, correct. Or you could do, I mean, essentially what's happened with like, you know, Kansas or something like that, where if you could vote in the, on a state by a state basis to enshrine those protections in your own constitution. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely like a, a historic day in a lot of ways and a lot to celebrate, but also I think if one of those, if you dig a little bit deeper, perhaps we should be patting ourselves on our, on the back too hard. There is still um, the Equality Act, which would make it illegal to discriminate upon the basis of sex, gender, or sexuality, um, which hasn't yet been passed and could be another step. As, as Ricky, as you look towards, like, we know it's not linear and it's the, you can't all of a sudden jump to this to get 12 Republican senators on board and 39 Republican congressmen on board to this is is great. But that might be something else where in the in the near future, hopefully, that would be something that comes back up to enshrine greater protections for Respect for all people. In other big news this week, Brittany Griner, the WNBA star and arguably the most famous American hostage ever, I would say probably at least the most singularly famous individual American hostage, you'd probably say like the Iranian hostages collectively were more famous, is home this week. And that is objectively good news. I don't think you could in good faith argue that having an American who was unjustly detained abroad home is is anything but good news. With that said, it wasn't without its controversy. And that's because in order to get Brittany Griner home, the United States engaged in a hostage exchange with Russia and gave up Victor Bout, who we talked about, Ricky, back in August, has the incredible nickname, the Merchant of Death, the... Nicolas Cage movie, Lord of War, was based on him. Victor Bout was essentially an international arms dealer who sold weapons to anybody who would buy them, including sewing conflicts across Africa, the Middle East, Asia, often with selling weapons to groups, countries that would target American lives. So the controversy wasn't necessarily that Brittany Griner was coming home, but was who we gave up for her. The United States, there are other Russian, other Americans who are detained in Russia. Paul Whelan is the name that's been bandied about most, but there, there are several other Americans that are currently detained over there that we think are detained unjustly that 
we weren't able to get home. President Biden acknowledged that pretty much saying that, like, we had a choice here. We could either get Brittany home or get no one home. And so while it's not the best deal overall, it's the best deal that we could make. And we're really happy she's home. So, Ricky, what, what are your reactions to Brittany Griner coming home? Yeah, I think when when we discussed her situation um, originally, it was, you know, for her friends and her family uh, advocating for the U.S. government to use, you know, whatever means at its disposal to get her back. Um, you know, obviously there's there's you, you can't fault that. And I'm certainly very happy for her that she's back here. I, I mean, I, yeah, it's very hard to like peel back from like the individual outcome. And obviously for her as a person, I don't, I don't think I could want anything else for her, but for her to come home. But just thinking about the entire situation is very uneasy for me. Like she's obviously not the only American to be locked up abroad, but probably the most famous one. She's not the only American to be locked up abroad for, you know, a nonviolent drug type of offense, but of course the most famous one. She did in fact break these Russian laws, uh, you know, self-admittedly, right? It's not, it wasn't that a, wasn't some kind of trumped up charge that they were holding her on. Uh, Obviously we don't think that the punishment fits the crime here. Um, But I think the big thing that about the coverage or at least about sort of like the Biden statement around the coverage that just bothers me is this idea that like Russia and you know they are they're doing a lot of things a lot of reasons that you could call them evil and point to what they're doing as evil but this particular case to me is kind of laughable that we say you know this unjustly detained in these intolerable conditions was the quote from the Biden administration when we have 1.9 million people in prison in the U.S., about a quarter of those for drug offenses, right? Like, and we have more prisoners in the U.S. for drug offenses than than anywhere else in the world. I don't know what that, what status, like how many of those are for nonviolent drug offenses, but I'm, I would assume a great deal. I'm sure a lot more are for bigger offenses than what Brittany Griner had. But I don't know how many are similarly in her case, who, you know, whose keys that we've kind of, you know, locked the door and thrown the keys away. And to try and specifically use her case to make some kind of statement about how Russia's like doing these like evil things and manipulating whatever, whatever, it's kind of like it's a little bit, I don't know. It just doesn't make it's it doesn't fully make sense to me. It doesn't really sit right to me. And it's it's one of those things where obviously this thing happens, this thing happened, and we can use it to fit our overarching narrative of Russia as this generally bad actor that's doing all these big, bad, evil things in the world. But like in this particular case, is it is that the truth? And how does that square with also what we are doing at home to to other people on nonviolent drug offenses related to weed. I don't know. Right. Like that. That's, it doesn't sit good with me. Cynical as always here for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You credit though with consistency, because I think what you've done 
consistently over these past few episodes as you've tied how the narrative that we in the United States spin about other countries without necessarily holding up the mirror to ourselves. And that's really fair. That that wasn't necessarily the part that upset me the most, but I think it, listening to you, I co-sign everything you just said. I did think it was interesting that there was a fierce debate between the Justice Department and the State Department here about Griner's release, which the State Department was victorious and Justice Department officials are kind of bitter about. And so some quotes that came out from the Justice Department, and this is, Ricky, this is kind of what we were saying anyway. It's a quote, if she were my relative, I would want to do the swap. But trading a notorious international arms dealer for basketball player is madness. And what I didn't know is that Victor Bout, who was the prisoner, the Russian prisoner we exchanged for Griner, he was originally captured in Thailand. And the United States pressured Thai authorities to hand him over so he could face trial here in the United States. Russian, The Russian government was pressuring the Thai government not to do that and to hand them back over to the Russians. The Thai government gave them to us, again, facing heavy pressure from the Russians not to do so. And then we turn around and just give him back to the Russians. And so the one of the Justice Department officials was saying that, like, there's some, like, big picture stuff that people aren't really considering. And again, this is no shot at Brittany Griner and her, and her family. Thrilled that she's home. But they were saying, how are we now supposed to go to other governments and say, hey, give them to us. We're going to hold this person accountable. And then we're just immediately going to turn around and use that person to, you know, for American gain. If I were the other countries, like, the Thai government suffered, like, Russia consequences from their actions and then the u.s turns around and just hands this guy right back over i think that would be very frustrating to me and also like we had talked previously ricky like it it pays to have americans in your back pocket now right if, if you have americans in jail for what americans american presidents might say is like unjust reasons you might be able to get what you want in, in exchange for those americans and i also think that's a dangerous precedent yeah, I mean, certainly you would say this is not a like-for-like like swap, and so there's <laughs> there's certain, uh, right, it almost like de- devalues the, um, the, the, like, the level of American held abroad in, in some sense. Like, who would we have to have in our, in, in one of our prisons to be able to trade, <laughs> to trade for someone like, like a, like a Paul Whelan? Also, yeah, yeah it's, it's probably not good to be talking about just like trading human beings like this. But in I think the reality is there is, yeah, something to be said for that. Yeah, last thing I'll say is, again, glad that Brittany Griner's home. What One of the positives I do think that comes out of, came out of this is that there was an increased focus on Americans who were detained abroad. And she is not the only one. Paul Whelan is not the only one. Unfortunately, there are still many Americans who are detained for what we think are unjust reasons abroad. And Maybe if there's any good that comes out of this, there's a little more attention that's paid to it because I think you could argue convincingly that the reason that Brittany Griner was prioritized was because she was a famous person and that like the media knew who she was and focused a lot of attention on her. But there's a lot of people out there who are not famous, who are currently being held and whose families would love to see them home too. So hopefully we as a country and media don't lose focus on some of the other Americans who are unjustly detained abroad. We'll leave it there. So reluctantly, we're going to spend this last segment talking about former president and current presidential candidate, Donald Trump. 
Ricky and I went back and forth about whether we wanted to talk about this, but as I said to him offline, I read this article in the Washington Post last week that addressed this very topic, and the thesis of the article was that there's there is an argument to be made that we should just stop giving some of the stuff he says oxygen because it's like he just takes up too much of all of our brains and and words and thoughts. On the other hand, sometimes he says things that are so outrageous that they have to be addressed. And they have to be addressed because, like I said, he is a current presidential candidate. So what I'm talking about for people that are not aware, uh, last week, Elon Musk, who now owns Twitter, dropped after he teased like what are known as the Twitter files. And essentially what came out was that Twitter made the decision to downplay and censor a little bit the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop in the lead up to the 2020 election. Some conservatives were outraged about this, even though this is something that I think we all knew happened. You know, we have, Elon was releasing proof that it happened. And President Trump you know, tweeted or put out in Truth Social that unprecedented fraud requires unprecedented solutions, including the termination of any rules in the Constitution. He later backtracked and said only low IQ people would think that he was saying to terminate the Constitution. But if, if you read the post, it says that we should terminate any and all rules, including those in the Constitution. Not really sure how else people are, are supposed to take that. And this is where, like, it's, 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 it's incredible. Like, I, like it, the, People are probably aware that the president takes an oath, that the oath that the president takes is to preserve, protect, and defend the United States Constitution. That is the oath that you take of office. He is running for that office and either implicitly or explicitly suggested that we should terminate some rules because he feels like those rules were against him. So it's something that we we have to say. I think, Ricky, it's something we have to talk about. You can't you, you can't have major presidential candidates out there arguing for the suspension of some rules in the constitution they don't like. <laughs> no, I, I suppose, I suppose that you can't, I guess, you know, part of the reason that I wasn't all that interested in this story is that I, f I feel like that that's how he's been operating since he became president. Like the rules that I don't feel like should apply to me don't apply to me. And I guess, you know, formalizing them in some words that he puts on his own social media service is yeah perhaps a red flag but i don't i don't <laughs> i don't know i it's just like this is how he has been operating sort of throughout his time as a as president you know kind of leading up to it and then and then in the, in sort of the aftermath i think like yeah, it was, it was like, it was funny for a while, like as he was like a, you know, his original candidacy for presidency when nobody was really taking him seriously. But then obviously, you know, he caught the imaginations of a, a pretty sizable chunk of this country. And I don't, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't think that this is like a departure from his, from anything he's done in the past. And so like, I, while it is scary to have it in writing perhaps and scary to think that he could still be the party's nomination in 2024 and would have a realistic shot at winning. I'm not surprised. 
I am not surprised either, and I don't think this is a departure from anything, but I do think that things have escalated from like the the original run in 2015, 2016, increasingly up through the reaction to the 2020 elections, January 6th, some of the stuff that he has said, some of the people that he has talked to in the, in the past few weeks and few months. And I, I do think it's increasingly clear that he is a, a danger to American society and American constitution and American values. And again, that's like you said, that is not a new thing, but it, I think it needs to be as crystal clear as possible. He, he is a true threat to some of like the, our most important values. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that he can continue to shine a light on our deficiencies or the areas that we have just kind of relied on past precedent and sort of the way things have been, um, you know, given that I've been the cynical guy in the podcast and I'll be the silver linings guy now, like I, I, I think he continues to give us opportunities to shore up our democracy in ways that we have been complacent in the past. And I will, I will, you know, I will look to, to continue to find those loopholes. <laughs> yeah. What I, Ricky, I love that take. Look That's great. That you hire to, to break into your own system so you can figure out where, <laughs> where are all the holes. Yeah, no, that's a great take. I, I, I love that. I'm, it's it only becomes dangerous when the hacker is now like running your company, right? <laughs> yeah. But so, but as as long as he's just the hacker you're hiring, then great. And so let's let's hope that's where he's relegated to at this point. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got to say about that one. That might be a little. That might be a short segment. Yeah. That's all I got to say about that, Ricky. Ricky Forrest Gump, Ricky Gosher. <laughs> <laughs> Life is like a box of chocolates, Brendan. It it is always important to remember that. Yeah, we got we got six of them. Yeah, so we got six of them this week. So hopefully people enjoy the different flavors. Can't say it any better than that. We'll see you, buddy. See you soon. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you awake, the morning lets your ego bruise, but 
what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, cause though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lion's head. The folks are different mind because though we did not share. Opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Need an early morning bird.